Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. Today we're going to be examining 2 Peter 3.9, which I and many other Arminians and Molinists use as sort of a proof text. I hate using that word, but uh, it's a text that we use as justification for believing that God has a universal salvific will, that God loves all people, desires the salvation of all people, every single human individual. But Calvinists cannot accept this interpretation of 2 Peter 3.9 while also affirming the validity of their five points known as the tulip, particularly limited atonement and unconditional election. Therefore, they have to find some interpretation that would restrict the any and all to something less than all of humanity. My guest today is David Palman. He runs the YouTube channel Faith Because of Reason, where he puts out a lot of good, visually beautiful apologetics and theological videos. He also co-hosts the podcast Proselytize or Apostatize, which I've been a guest on four times already. Um, in one episode, I had a debate with an atheist on the Kalam cosmological argument. Uh, and in another, I responded to the friendly atheist criticisms of Genesis 1, along with David Palman and David Russell. And we sort of tackled the friendly atheist uh, objections to Genesis 1 from our own viewpoints. Uh, they tackled uh, his objections from a concordist day-age perspective. I tackled it from a non-concordist cosmic temple inauguration perspective and it was really good to have those two uh those two points in parallel i think because it really showed that you know regardless of where which view you took uh his objections were just really really bad and uh there's nothing wrong with genesis one uh but they got some other stuff we just recently had a panel discussion on uh five views of eternal security uh, they got a lot of good stuff over there. You should go check out Proselytize or Apostatize. It's on YouTube, and it's also on Anchor. Uh, but today we're, we're going to be talking about uh, an essay that David Palman wrote about 2 Peter 3, 9, and why the Calvinist attempts to get around the verse aren't uh, – uh, why they are failures. So, hello, David. It's good to have you on the podcast. Hey, Evan. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, it's good to have you on. Uh, now, before we get into our di- uh, into into today's topic, uh, I want you to introduce yourself to the audience. I want you to like tell us what got you interested in Christian apologetics, theology in general, and in particularly, what got you interested in the topic of Calvinism versus Arminianism. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I was raised, I think, kind of like you in. Uh, uh, kind of more fundamentalist family, uh, but Christian and uh, didn't really get taught things like apologetics. So when I started encountering objections to my faith, discovered I didn't have good answers. Uh, so, you know, I went through a period of doubting and questioning and why do I really think Christianity is true? Uh, came across some of the same books as you, uh, like Lee Strobel's works were some of the first ones that I encountered. Uh, then just moved on from there. Uh, and it was really just an attempt to 
find justification for what I believed, uh, or if it was wrong, then, you know, I, I tried to be open about it. And, uh, of course I'd be lying if I said I didn't want Christianity to be true through it all, but I, I was trying to be open to what, um, you know, where, uh, where the truth would lead me. Uh, so that was kind of how I got involved in apologetics. But while I was, uh, in that phase of, you know, kind of figuring out why I was a Christian, I came across a book by Ron Rhodes, who is a four-point Calvinist. And I mostly got it for the apologetic content, but there was also some soteriological content in there. And he made a case for Calvinism. And that was something that was new to me. I had never encountered Calvinism, uh, you know, really before. I'd, I'd heard about it from church, you know, mostly straw men stuff that, you know, these are people who denied free will and, you know, thought that God was a cosmic rapist and stuff. And so, you know, I, I had a very negative view of it, but he was actually presenting biblical arguments for it. And so at the time, I, I wanted to really study more apologetic stuff, but I put that on the back burner as an issue to study more. Uh, and, you know, eventually when I became more solid in my Christian faith, I uh, went on to study this Calvinism issue. And I, I came out of that as a classical Arminian. I, I was not an Arminian before that. Like, I was really big on once saved, always saved and stuff. And I, I know we kind of disagree on this, but I, I did come to the conclusion that a believer could forfeit their faith and lose that salvation. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I became an Arminian. Uh, and so that's I've kind of had an interest in uh, these issues ever since then. Yeah, well, yeah, well, you know my soteriological views. I'm, I'm sort of kind, of, I'm, I'm kind of a weird, freakish hybrid. Uh, I affirm perseverance of the saints, total depravity. Well, I, we would both affirm total depravity. That's a, that's a usual Arminian thing. But I also kind of affirm a very Molinistic flavor of unconditional election, but then I also affirm a lot of the Arminian tenets that you do. God wants all people saved. Jesus died on the cross for all people. Grace is resistible. We have libertarian free will, and so I get weird looks from both sides of the aisle. People are like, "Are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? I can't make sense of where you're coming from." <laughs> <laughs> so, but you're you're part of the Society of Evangelical Arminians with me, so you're 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 yeah. on the you're you're more on the right side of the aisle. Yeah, I, I'm. Yeah, I have I have more I have more Arminian in me than I do uh, Calvinist, but uh, I do like I do like uh, I do like what I think it was Norman Geisler who coined the term Calminian. <laughs> I think that might describe I think that might describe me. Yeah. Um, now, in your essay, you talk about Second Peter three nine, and uh, you say that the context of Second Peter three nine is essential to understanding who the verse is about, and uh, you know who, when it says God doesn't want anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What everything that comes up that comes before that, that's going to inform who the any and the all can be and who it cannot be. So explain to our audience what the context of Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 is. Yeah, well, Second Peter, is, it's very eschatological. We have eschatological themes all through uh, the book of Second Peter. And uh, what's interesting is for the first two chapters, he doesn't really uh, get into, well, Peter doesn't get into uh, the reason that he's writing the letter. That all begins in Second Peter 3. And uh, the eschatology becomes important here because uh, <clears throat> apparently, you know, he's dealing with these questions of uh, the people are like worried that Jesus is not going to come back. 
Uh, and I know you and I are both partial preterists, so that, that, that'll come up a little later about why that kind of becomes important for this interpretation. But in any case, uh, people had this, um, you know, Jesus is supposed to come back. He's not coming back. What's up with that? And so here, Peter's kind of emphasizing the importance of uh, believing that Jesus is coming again. And uh, he makes a few points here, and some of these verses are, you know, not as well known, but um, he's making special reference to the fact that there's going to be these scoffers. Uh, this is V in verses three and four, that scoffers are going to come in the last days and be like, where's the promise of his coming? And uh, everything is continuing just as it has from the beginning. Uh and, you know, what's up with that? Uh, and Peter is, you know, giving them reasons for uh, why things seem to be normal. He says that, uh, that, that, you know, despite all the apparent tranquility, the judgment's coming. God's, God's keeping the creation back for the purpose of judging it, though. He's reserving it for judgment, he says. Uh, you know, in verses 5 through 7, uh, he's going on to uh, just describe that, uh, that even though the judgment may seem to be taking a long time, you know, a day with the Lord is a thousand years. So this doesn't seem like a long time to God. So he's giving all these reasons for why, uh, you know, the judgment is taking a while to come. Why, why isn't Jesus coming back as soon as we might expect? And one of the reasons for that is that he is patient, long suffering towards you because he doesn't want anyone to perish. And so what that is functioning as then, that controversial phrase is functioning as a reason for why the perusia, the judgment, the second coming, why all of that has not happened yet. It's a delay. And the interesting thing is, this is pretty widely admitted across the board, uh, you know, among even Calvinist scholars that I read on this, like, like James White agree that uh, that he's explaining that this is a reason for the delay. And so any interpretation of this passage has to, you know, give us an adequate reason of how God not wanting anyone to perish, how can that be uh, an explanation for why the second coming or the judgment has not come yet? Yeah, yeah. And context, context is king. You take any hermeneutics class, Pretty much everyone will tell you, read the Bible in its context. And in this case, it's the immediate context. It's the sentences that come before and the sentences that come after. Um, I like how Greg Kokel puts it. He says, never read a Bible verse. Uh, now, when I read your essay, you you seem I, – you, I don't know if this was your intention or not, but you seem to go in like a progression. You addressed like the fir the weakest interpretation first, and then you, you save the strongest for last. Uh, so, and the first interpretation you address is that the you just refers to recipients of Peter's letter. Uh, why does that not work? Well, yeah, one common, you know, thing here is uh, he's, well, he's writing to believers, right? And he says, God is long suffering towards you, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So, you know, he's writing to believers, uh, this immediate audience, would it not make sense then to just say that those are the people that, you know, he, he uh, is being long suffering towards and he doesn't want them to perish, these immediate people he's writing to. But the problem with this interpretation, and it's a pretty obvious one, is that the people he's writing to are believers. So it, it wouldn't make a lot of sense for him to say God is delaying the judgment because he doesn't want any of you who've already repented. 
because well, he wants to give you a chance to repent. Well, hang on a minute. We've already <laughs> repented. So th- this does not explain why there's a delay here. And this is kind of usually like a Calvinist who has not really thought about the issue at all. And that's just his first response. But it does come up. So that's why I addressed it. But I agree with you. It is by far the weakest interpretation. Yeah. What about what about what if someone tried to defend this by saying, well, you know, there, maybe there were like some. Uh, you know, either false converts or maybe unbelievers among them, and it was those people in the congregation who God wanted, he was waiting on them to come to repentance. Uh, well, that would run into the second um, the second uh, interpretation that I addressed, and uh, I don't know if he wants to go right into that. Is, do you want us to go to the second objection? Because I think oh. my argument against that is what I would use against uh, that kind of objection. Oh, okay. Well, let's go into that then. Uh, the the second objection, which is that uh, it's just about the where's my notes? The elect. Uh, th- yeah, that it's just about the elect in general. Yeah, this would be the more uh, common Calvinist explanation is that uh, the towards you is, oh, well, he's writing to believers. Believers are part of the elect. So uh, it would be the elect. And so, you know, as to the question you raise about whether or not this would apply to, you know, maybe unsaved people within the congregation of the church. Well, uh, on Calvinist terms, it, it obviously it can't be, you know, every single one of those people unless you're willing to say all of them were elected. So that's why I, that, that's kind of why I think uh, the argument I give against the interpretation that this is just all of the elect, why I would also use it against that uh, question that you raised there. Uh, and so, you know, obviously it's true that Second Peter is addressed to believers, and we know that because he says he's writing a second letter to them. And if we go to First Peter, he's writing to the elect of God. Uh, so here we've got, you know, do we have a good explanation here for the delay of judgment that God is giving an opportunity here, you know, for uh, just the elect to believe? Now, uh, the first place is we don't really have any good contextual reasons to limit it to just the elect, right? Because obviously now this is broadening the scope to beyond the immediate recipients. But why should we limit it from that to the just the elect? I think you made a good point on this in your article that I referenced, is you said that there's no reason to think that just because Peter is writing to the elect, that therefore he's talking about only the elect. And uh, I think that, that that that's a good point is that they still have to give us, you know, a good reason to think that's what Peter has in mind. You can't just say, oh, well, that's possible. So that's what it means. Uh, they would have to actually demonstrate that. And, you know, that's just the hypothesis as far as I'm concerned. But I think that there is uh, a couple other problems with that. And it comes from this idea that God is being patient. Right. And I, I'm probably I might butcher the pronunciation, but the word there is uh, macrothymia, and, and that I'm trying to pronounce that as best I can. But uh, it suggests that there's this conditional factor there. If God's being patient, He's waiting for something, and who's it says He's being patient with you, so He's waiting for you to do something. Uh, but according to Calvinism, regeneration precedes faith. Right. God is the one who uh, initiates salvation. Right. He doesn't just give prevenient grace like in the Arminian view where God enables everyone to believe. So in that case, you know, we really could say he's being patient, but not in Calvinism. In Calvinism, God regenerates people or, you know, does some kind of irresistible work. And then when he does that, people cannot fail to come. And very few Calvinists are willing to say that, you know, oh, well, there's a gap of time in between when God regenerates it and then, you know, maybe 
a few months down the road, the person believes. I mean, most Calvinists or, or a lot of Calvinists that I talk to will say that the two are temporally contemporaneous, meaning they happen pretty much at the same time, at least, you know, while logically regeneration is first, as soon as God regenerates, the person believes. And that poses an issue for this because, uh, or for the interpretation that just the elect are in view. Because if you say that just the elect are in view, uh, that God is being patient with them because he doesn't want any of them to perish, but, you know, for all of them to come to repentance, well, hang on a second, that, that doesn't mesh with regeneration preceding faith. You essentially, you essentially have God being patient with himself. God's, you know, waiting for himself to regenerate these people so that they'll believe. Uh, but then, you know, what? That, that's not explaining for the delay of the judgment. That doesn't fit with the um, the word that, you know, the, the statement that he's patient towards you because he doesn't want any of you to perish. Uh, the explanation just it, it contradicts their own doctrine that uh, this, this monergistic regeneration has to happen before a person can believe. Yeah, because if, if God if it was for the sake of the elect, God could just go ahead and get it over with they would all believe and then he could bring the judgment there would be right no need. there'd be no need for the delay so yeah so like he'd be like okay you're elect you're elect you're elect you're elect okay we got i i got my list of people i want saved all checked off it's time to bring in the apocalypse yeah, there would have to be a delay. What it's saying is that God is not bringing the judgment. Remember that context, the, the judgment's being delayed, and the reason it's being delayed is because God you know, doesn't want anyone to perish. But if God is the one who's determining who it is who perishes and who doesn't perish, and they'll believe anyway as soon as he regenerates them, he doesn't have to delay anything. He can, he can regenerate them, get over with, and the judgment can happen when it's supposed to. Right, and it kind of remind it kind of reminds me similarly of of how I uh, look at Ezekiel 18, in which God is pleading with Israel, "Come back, come back, stop worshiping idols. I don't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, but I want uh, I re I prefer when people come to repentance. Why why will you die, Israel? And yet on the Calvinist scheme, he they can't repent unless he gives them this irresistible grace to you know, sort of drag them back. And so on a Calvinist scheme, the only reason why the people in Ezekiel's day aren't repenting on a Calvinist view must be that he's not, he's not giving them that grace. And so he's really just putting on a show with all these pleas to repentance. And so it, yeah. it seems like, it seems like we've got like on a Calvinist scheme, something similar with second Peter three, nine, where God is just being patient, knowing that no, knowing that, you know, they're not going to repent until he says, OK, it's time. Yep. Senseless theatrics is essentially what, what that would boil down to. So the, your, the third objection or uh, not object, but the third argument that you go into is. Uh, well, actually, I think it's like a Calvinist counter argument to what you just said, and that is what if God is waiting for the elect who are not born yet? So like God didn't bring the apocalypse in Peter's day, because he was waiting for you and I to be born, and maybe some of the people in this uh, listening to this podcast, he was he was waiting on that they didn't even exist yet. 
Yeah, and I think that this is probably the strongest point that the Calvinists can make on uh, as far as this verse goes is that um, is to try to argue that well, some of the elect had not been born yet, and that that would escape you know this sort of regeneration preceding faith objection that I would make to if it's just the elect. But if you posit some of the elect are still in the future, then you have an explanation for why God can delay the judgment. Now. Um, my first thought on that is that it kind of makes God look like a poor strategist, because if you're delaying something, then it means it should have already happened. Right. But uh, if God is the all determiner of, uh, you know, who's going to be saved when the elect are born uh, and when the judgment's going to happen, well, delaying it means it was supposed to happen here, but it's being pushed back. Why? It begins to look like, oh, well, God forgot that, you know, there were all these other people that he, you know, had elected to salvation and now he has to wait for them to be born. Uh, you know, what? That, that, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Uh, if God, you know, really wanted all men to freely believe like the Arminians believe, then it makes sense for him to delay this judgment because, you know, people have to you have to the, the time, as Paul said, we persuade men. So people have to you know, be persuaded. The grace of God, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, all of these factors come into play. So God can really be giving people an opportunity to repent, uh, you know, and that explains the delay for judgment if there's that real conditionality there. But if you remove that conditionality, then you still you're not really escaping nonsense from this passage. Uh, but there is another you know, point here that I think uh, you and I, as partial preterists, would, uh, would appreciate. Uh, and that is that Peter, throughout this epistle, regards the end as coming soon, right? He, he, he thinks that the people he's writing to, that they're going to experience this judgment. So he's not you know, thinking eons in the future, thousands of years. And he, by the way, this works no matter what eschatological view you hold. Peter, he regards the end as coming soon. So even if you, you know, take, you know, a futurist view that the end still hasn't come, the point is Peter is not saying that God is delaying the judgment because he wants to allow for those who haven't been born yet. Uh, if we're getting inside Peter's head, which is what we have to do for exegesis, is what is what does he mean here? He thinks the end is going to happen soon. So this is not, you know, an option for him. Uh, and the evidence for that is, is shown in verses 11 and 14, right? Second Peter 3, 11 to 14. Uh, 14, I think, is especially striking. Uh, he says, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. So who, who are those going to be found by, by Christ? Well, it's the people he's writing to. He expects them to be found by Christ. Now, you and I, as partial preterists, can affirm that, you know, Peter was right in that. But even if you think yeah. Peter was wrong in that, the point remains, he's not looking into the future. This is not the reason for Peter that God is delaying the judgment. So even this explanation does not make sense of the imminence that Paul uh, sees here. Peter regards it as likely that the end times would happen within the lifetimes of those he's writing to. And if that assessment's correct, then the Calvinist is not able to argue that Peter regards the cause of God's patience in 3.9 as being due to the fact that the elect are not born yet. Yeah, I agree. And I, I agree that you, do, that you don't have to, to adopt a preterist understanding to believe that that's what Peter believed. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, by the before we before we move on before I move on to my next question, uh, just explain. I, I've talked about preterist on this podcast, and I've talked about it on the blog. 
Uh, I'd have Brian Godawa on here. We were talking about his Chronicles of the Apocalypse series, which is pretty much left behind for Preterist, except to tr- <laughs> uh, not only does it take a Preterist perspective, but it is written really, really well, very engaging. Uh, but I'm not going to assume that everybody who's listening to this episode has already heard all of those. So just like give a like a very quick summary of what uh, partial preterism is and what it isn't. Like it isn't oh. de- like it isn't denying that Christ is coming again and that there's going to be a bodily resurrection. Yeah, yeah. So broadly speaking, preterism or realized eschatology would be the view that uh, all of the end times prophecies in the Bible, all or most of them, uh, have been fulfilled. So uh, when we read Revelation, we're, we're reading about historical events. When we read Matthew 24, although these were predictions, you know, that Jesus was making, for us, that's history. Uh, and we typically view these as happening in AD 70. Now, there's a distinction between orthodox or partial preterism which are also the historic preterists. So this is, you know, this has been the main position, which uh, doesn't view everything as having happened. So we do believe that Jesus is still coming again. Uh, and, and I think we would appeal to Acts uh, for that uh, when, when we uh, have this prediction coming that uh, that Jesus is yeah. going to come yeah. as and, he and first And First Thessalonians 4, because, I mean, that's tied to the resurrection of the saints. Yeah. So, you know, we would appeal to these verses. Uh, most full preterists, they take the resurrection as being spiritual. Um, read N.T. Wright's Resurrection of the Son of God, and you can't believe in a, in a spiritual resurrection anymore. Uh, but yeah, so we would affirm a physical resurrection that is still future. But yeah, a full preterist, or uh, that's pretty much considered a heresy. And these are people who say, yeah, absolutely everything that's already happened, and there's not another coming of Christ, and there's not another resurrection of believers. Yeah, when I expl- when I explain this to people, I usually like to say it like this: like most of what we think are second coming passages were actually about Jesus coming in AD seventy, and um, I I say, but not all of them were. Like Acts, the angel said, "Hey, the same way that you saw Jesus left, that's the way you're going to see him come again." Again, well, how did they see him leave? Visible in a human body, up into the air. So kind of stands to reason that when he comes back, he'd be visible in a human body coming down from the air. And, of course, First Thessalonians 4 and the fact that, you know, the, the very fact that Paul links our resurrection with Jesus' resurrection, which we know is physical and not symbolic or anything. But I say that what I, what I view happening, it, what, that what happened in AD 70 and all of the events, Nero being the, the beast of Revelation – or, or the Antichrist and all that, I say that that's kind of like a miniature apocalypse that serves as a shadow for the global apocalypse that is yet to come. Uh, just to, kind of like how the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were a shadow of the true sacrifice, Christ on the, on the cross. Uh, in 70 AD, Jesus came in his human nature to judge Jerusalem for rejecting him as the Messiah – and in the future, Jesus is going to come in his human nature to judge the world for the same reason, for rejecting him as the Messiah. And I, when I explain it that way, it really helps people to get, okay, you're not denying the second coming. You're not denying uh, bodily right. You're not uh, being a heretic. You're just, say, <laughs> you're just saying that there's this distinction between – you know, you, you, they say, okay, you're not, you're just saying that Matthew 24 and Acts 1 are not talking about the same event. 
Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's a, a wise strategy to adopt. Uh, you know, to most people, this, this kind of partial preterism is an obscure position. So you, you know, it, it, you're already having a lot of <laughs> eyebrows yeah. raised. Yeah, especially especially uh, in my in my neck of the woods. Uh, you know, the Bible Belt left behind the left behind theology is all the rage down here. So I'm quite, <laughs> I'm, I'm a soteriological uh, oddball. I'm an eschatological oddball. My Theistic evolution makes me an oddball. I'm just the black sheep in every church I go to. <laughs> Getting education, man, it it it, it hurts. <laughs> so uh, I'd I'd like to bring up one argument uh, against. Uh, this is this is one that I've responded to in my blog post uh, addressing Calvinist response. This is Second Peter three nine, and I have my own thoughts on it, and I I gave my response to this, but I'd like to know uh, what your thoughts are. Uh, and how they would differ or how they would be the same. Maybe you would give the exact same answer I would. Uh, Jim Boucher of TheREforeGodExist.com, he writes, uh, quote, Peter did not make that, Second Peter 3.9, statement in a vacuum. If he did, it might be more compelling. Instead, he said it in the middle of his discourse about the second coming. He said that when the last days come, many people will mock Christians. Uh, where is this so-called second coming? Verse 4, what is taking so long? Just give up. He's not coming, you fool. Peter writes this to encourage them. There is a reason that God is taking so long. Uh, it is not long for him because a day uh, is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day, Second Peter 3, 8. God is patient. He had reasons for taking so long. Uh, what are those? Well, ba okay, basically he says everything that you said about the, the context. Uh, about it being about the second coming, but then he 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 goes on to to say why he thinks it doesn't make sense on an Arminian perspective. He says, "quote No matter how long God waits, there will always be more people who could possibly come to into repentance. God could always look forward to the next generation of potential believers and wait for them. You could truly say, what is God waiting for?'" That is why it makes more sense to say that God is waiting for the full number of his elect to come into repentance. They are scattered throughout the ages and the nations. He is patiently waiting for all of his people to repent, not willing that a single one of them would perish, end quote. Yeah, I mean, I respond to that in, in two ways, and both of them are really – it's really going to be the same answer, though. It's that uh, I think God has perfect, infallible, and certain foreknowledge of who is going to believe. And so for this immediate judgment that we're seeing here, which is what I really think is what we saw happened uh, in AD 70, I think that's the judgment that is being referred to here. But um, so, you know, on that view, God, you know, will wait until the people that he knows are going to believe who, you know, otherwise would not have escaped the judgment, who would have you know, died in 8070 as unbelievers, uh, that this judgment would have taken their lives, that God really did delay it until all those that he knew, you know, that he knew he knew that this patience is that jelly bean. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So God knew that his patience, his delaying the judgment would result in these people um, coming to faith in Christ. So, you know, there, there's a, um, a bone for the Molinists there uh, that God, through his middle knowledge, knew that if he delays the judgment, then these people will come to faith. You can't extend that into the future, though, if you want, uh, you know, for uh, that, that particular Calvinist objection, uh, even if you don't take a preterist view of eschatology, you can take that, you know, as far as you want in the future. God can delay the coming judgment 
until you know he knows that that uh you know wh whether you think it's all people who are gonna believe believe or um whether you think that you know the, the the ratio would be perfect between people who came to faith and people who did not you know where it was at a high for people who were going to believe and at, as low as it could be for those who didn't believe and that's when god brings the judgment so you know i think it the answer lies in god's foreknowledge personally yeah and that, that was one of the things that i said in my uh, blog response was that you know god, god knew he created a a world with that has an optimal balance between saved and lost and he may have to wait until a particular time for that particular ratio to be met especially if the minority of people in the world are are getting saved at a time uh you know that ratio obviously you know but i i also t i also talk about uh how you know for a lot of people, at some point, they become so hardened towards God that they reach, like, a point of no return. Like, Pharaoh, you know, he just kept hardening his heart and kept hardening his heart and kept hardening his heart until, uh, eventually, uh, he got killed. Because he just, you know, some people some people even say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart in, a, in response to the repeatedness of Pharaoh hardening his heart. But even if it was just Pharaoh by himself... And God hardened Pharaoh's heart as a result of, you know, uh, God placing Pharaoh in that circumstance or God hardening him via the commands, which is what the Apologetic Study Bible says. Uh, the, the Canaanites, uh, the people in Revelation 14, uh, whoever you think that may be, they're getting judged by God. They seem to be aware of it, and yet instead of repent, they're just cursing God. So you could I the, the argument that I make is that God might be waiting until okay number one a ratio of optimal balance of saved to loss and number two eventually there's going to come a point where people are just so hard that they're not going to freely repent they're going to have reached that point of no return and that's why I think uh, that's why I propose in uh, in my blog post in Luke eighteen eight Jesus asks when the Son of Man comes will he find faith on the earth. Uh, of course, I, I'm, you know, that could be referring to uh, the 70 thing, or it could be referring to the, uh, the, the same kind of coming that Acts One is talking about. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I think that that's uh, also an acceptable response. Uh, <laughs> the funny thing I also wanted to comment on this is that he said, if he said this in a vacuum, then it might be persuasive. Uh, they says, oh, but look at the context. Uh, I think the context makes it overwhelmingly favor the uh, Arminian and Molinist view that this is really expressing a desire that God wants all to be saved. That's why he's delaying the judgment. Makes yeah, no sense I, I, I think view. so, too. It's ironic. That's my that's my that's my counselor. That's my Palpatine impression. <laughs> you need the wrinkles. Yeah. So, um. Second, uh, Second Peter 3.9 is certainly a difficult a passage for those who go, hold to unconditional election and unlimited atonement, but what are some others that you can list off? Well, we've got really two other ones, I think. When uh, Obviously, John 3.16 would be a famous one, uh, that God so loves the world that he gives his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, and if we look at how you know the term world is used throughout John's gospel, it typically means people in rebellion against God. And so since this love for the world is what motivates him to send his son, 
it seems likely that this would be an expression that God wants all people to be saved. Uh, but probably the strongest one would be 1 Timothy 2, 4, uh, that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I'm working on another article on that where I kind of, I'm going to go through Calvinist objections to that verse. Yeah, 1 Timothy 2, 4 says uh, God wants all people to be saved to come to a knowledge of the truth. And then a couple of verses later in First uh, Timothy two six, he says uh, that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all people. Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah. And, and for me, I think I think that these are just strengthened when you add uh, what the five, when you add some text that I talk about in my blog post. Uh, five biblical texts that Calvinists can't wiggle out of, which. Uh, uh, launched. I wrote back in 2018, and it launched into a very long blog war with some Calvinists that are also up on the website. Uh, one of them, Second Peter two two one. So I know that some Calvinists they respond to First Timothy two four. They say, "Oh, it's just all kinds of people." You know, like uh, you know, some of the Japanese, some of the Chinese, some Americans, some Israelites, and so on. It's just it's not all people. It's just all people groups. But you have verses where. That kind of explanation really doesn't work, and one of those is Second Peter two one, and, and Peter says, "But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will severely introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves." In this verse, the apostle Peter warns his his readers of false teachers. He says they're going to introduce destructive heresies and they should be on the lookout for them but the thing about this verse that's, that stuck out to me is that uh, he says the, that the false teachers deny the sovereign lord who bought them and swing bring swift destruction on themselves and if you look at how this 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 language of Jesus buying people is used in other places in the New Testament it always refers to Jesus dying an atoning sacrifice for their sins like in uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 28, keep watch over yourselves and the entire flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So when you combine verses like John 3:16 and 1 Timothy 2, 4 with passages like that, it really makes the case for God's universal salvific will and limited atonement a lot stronger. Oh, yeah. Uh, and in fact, even reading uh, in the book, you know, the, the big, you know, the, the definitive work, if you will, of our times and limited atonement would be uh, from heaven. He came and saw her, which, you know, it's like a, I think it's like 500 page defense of limited atonement. And uh, there's a whole chapter dedicated to these sorts of, you know, texts that seem to argue against limited atonement. And uh, Thomas Schreiner does that chapter. And I have a lot of respect for Schreiner. Uh, he's, he's a he's a brilliant scholar. But uh, his the way he tries to interpret that verse uh is that he says, oh, well, it looked like they were bought. So he, he interprets it phenomenologically. He says, well, it, it would just appear that they were bought by him. Um, and I, I, again, I have a lot of respect for Schreiner, but my thought there is, you know, you're, you're reaching. That, that's really a stretch. Um, you know, to just, what justification is there for saying, oh, well, it just looked like the sovereign Lord bought them. Um, you know, it's a pluperfect. It says, uh, you know, that they, that they, um, that they had been bought. So uh, I think it's a clue perfect. I, I might be mistaken on that. 
But another one like that would be uh, Hebrews 10, 10, 26 to 29. It says, if we go on sinning after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, that if is significant because it's a conditional. So, you know, if only if you go on sinning willfully after receiving knowledge of the truth, then the consequence of that is that there is no longer a sacrifice for your sins, uh, meaning there is a sacrifice for your sins before you meet that condition. Uh, and since this person, it, it goes, he goes on to say that, um, that this person has uh, trampled underfoot the Son of God, rejected the blood by which they've been sanctified, and insulted the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that, you know, this person is, is going to be worthy of worse judgment than someone who insulted, you know, or who broke the law of Moses. In other words, he goes on to say that person is going to go to hell. So this is somebody who ends up going to hell, who obviously, obviously, um, you know, they had a sacrifice for their sins before they went on sinning willfully. It even says that they've been sanctified by the blood of the covenant. So, you know, the, it's really hard to square that with limited atonement. Yeah, and uh, one of one of my uh, favorite passages that I think uh, really doesn't make any sense uh, about this whole um, when they tried to say it was all of the elect. I like to cite First Timothy four ten because it says this is what that is why we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. So if this is all, if the all people there in the former part of the verse just refers to all kinds of people or all of the elect people and all the people groups of the world, then it makes this verse redundant because he's saying, uh, God is the savior of all of the elect, especially for the elect. But you know, it makes it, (laughs) it's it's like saying, uh, it's like saying, I really enjoy all candy, especially sweets. (laughs) (laughs) yes it's very unnecessary and uh they run into an interesting problem as well with uh first timothy uh two four because as you mentioned he goes on in two six to say that um that that, uh, jesus died for all men but he also uses the phrase all men in verse one he says that he will have prayers to be made for all men now there's an interesting problem here that arises the prayers are to be made for all men. These are the same all men that God wants to be saved and that um, Jesus died for. Uh, but if these are the elect, so in other words, if 2-4 and 2-6, if it's just saying that God wants all kinds of men to be saved or all of the elect to be saved and that Jesus died for all kinds of men, all of the elect, that poses a huge problem for uh, verse 1 because how can we pray for those people? We don't know who they are. And yet Paul is exhorting Timothy to make prayers for all men. If you interpret that as the elect, you've got huge problems there because now you have to know who the elect are so you can pray for them. Yeah, I've actually, you know, it's weird because I've seen that same point uh, used to argue in both directions. I've, I've seen it to use argue in the way that you're arguing, but I've also seen just the opposite. So like in verse one, uh, he says, I I've, I urge that petitions, prayers, and intercessions be made uh, for all people. Uh, and then it goes on to say, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives and all godliness and holiness. And I've had Calvinists say, well, look, he, he, he mentions kings and he mentions pe- people in authority. These are kinds of people. So this means that in verse 4, it, he, he means kinds of people. 
<laughs> yeah, James White makes that argument. Uh, from Potter's Freedom, verse, uh, or page, Potter's Freedom, the first edition, page 140, he says, The first appearance of the phrase, all men, appears at the end of verse 1. The very next phrase of the sentence explains Paul's meaning, for kings and for all who are in authority. Who are kings and all who are in authority? They are kinds of men, classes of men. So, yeah, he tries to take that uh, to mean that, oh, well, when he says all men, it means all kinds of men. Now, his mistake here, first of all, I think his first mistake is assuming that uh, kings and all who are in authority is an explanation of all men. And the problem with that is that kings and all who are in authority, that's not all kinds of men. Sorry, that's that's a very narrow window of people that you've got there. So that would not describe all kinds of men. So that doesn't give you any justification then for taking all men as all kinds of men. But uh, I think this actually supports my view because obviously, you know, my view isn't that we're supposed to literally, you know, pull out a phone book and pray for each person through it right in these kind of endless prayer meetings but i think that paul is saying that no one is to be excluded from our prayers because no one is excluded from the atonement or for who god wants to be seen and the reason that he mentions kings and those in authority is this is addressed to first century christians who are persecuted and if you're persecuted who are you going to be like like if you're if you're persecuted by the powers that be those are the people that you're likely to exclude from your prayers because you know why do you want to pray for someone who's trying to kill you right but paul even says no you're not even to exclude those people from your uh from your your prayers and so i think that, that actually strengthens our position uh, that if you say not even the kings and those in authority are to be excluded from your prayers, then, you know, not then no one is excluded and therefore no one is excluded from who God wants to save. Right. Uh, I, I say I usually I usually respond that, you know, Paul saying God wants all people to be saved, come to a knowledge of the truth. Jesus died for all people. That serves as the explanation for the previous verses, why you ought to pray for kings and and those in authority because because god loves them and he died for them you know yep. so they're they're people too god loves them so you you should you should pray for them that, that's the explanation god wants all people including but not limited to all those nasty roman emperor all those nasty roman centurions and, and emperors who are, are making your lives uh, miserable Yep, yep. And, and the other thing is that this verse actually comes back again to, you know, pardon the expression, but it comes back again to bite the Calvinist in the butt. And this is why. Uh, if they can't make the case out of um, verse one, they'll sometimes go to verse seven, where Paul says that he uh, was appointed as a minister and a preacher to the Gentiles. And they're like, ah, see, so he mentioned Gentiles. So uh, we're talking about Jews and Gentiles. That's what he means by all men. Uh, obviously, you know, the first problem with that is timothy is a gentile and he ministers to gentiles so it doesn't seem very likely that you know that paul is emphasizing that maybe if he was writing the jews you could make that argument but it doesn't seem likely here but verse one comes back around and gets them and the reason why is because if you think it means jews and gentiles then how come paul explains you know further that all men uh includes kings and those in authority those are individuals. So, you know, he's not, it's not talking about Jews and Gentiles. So that further explanation actually hurts the Calvinist. Uh, and in fact, Arminius made this point uh, in his, in, in, when he had a, a, he had a written debate um, a while ago 
no, like centuries ago with, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember the guy's name. Uh, yeah, J- Jacob Arminius did live a, a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, a few centuries ago with William Perkins. That's who it was. Uh, and I have the quote here. Arminius said, if this passage is to be understood to refer to classes, then the apostle would not have said for all in authority, but for some at least in eminent positions. But he openly says that prayers should be made for single individuals in that relation. So actually, that that phrase for kings and those in authority, that actually is very problematic if you think that he means just all kinds of men understood as Jews and Gentiles. Yeah, and, and one of the one of the, the points that it's made about the Gentiles that I, I've seen uh, I've, I've seen people make. Uh, is that, well, you know, the Bible is constantly emphasizing on extending the gospel to Gentiles beyond Jews. And so it, it just means, you know, all of the all of the nations, especially if you adhere to divine counsel theology like I do, where, you know, God, you know, the whole Babel incident, God allotted the nations to the, the ex-divine council members. And when he died and rose from the dead, now he's going to reclaim the nations. So it's just it's just individuals in all of the nations. That that uh, that uh, the Bibli- uh, that Paul is talking about, or the biblical author is talking about. It seems to me that that begs the question in favor of Calvinism, because it could be that the reason God wants to reclaim the nations is because He wants every individual to be saved. He wants He He extends the gospel to the Gentiles because Gentiles are people too. He wants all yeah. people to be saved, and since Gentiles are people, you got to bring the gospel to them too. So it seems like it, it really it, – it seems to me like it's it, it's circular reasoning. Yeah, you'd have to pre-establish in advance that God had already selected certain individuals unconditionally for salvation and that he excluded other people in order to uh, put that kind of a reading onto the text. It certainly doesn't come from the text. Now uh, – well, uh, one more uh, objection to or to limited atonement, it's one that I, I've been seeing increasingly lately, is the double payment objection. And to, at least to my knowledge, I think John Owen was probably the first one to make the argument. And basically the argument goes uh, – well, I, I've, got, I've got his quote here um, – God imposed his wrath due unto, and Christ underwent the pains of hell for, either all the sins of all of the men, or all the sins of some men, or some sins of all men. If the last, then have all men some sins to answer for, and so shall no man be saved. If the second, Christ in their stead and room suffered for all the sins of the elect in the world. If the first, why then are not all freed from the punishment of their sins? You will say because of their unbelief. But this unbelief, is it a sin or not? If it be, then Christ underwent the punishment due to it. Then why must that hinder them more than other sins for which he died? End quote. And I, I believe I'm, I probably should have read that with a Shakespearean air. Yes, Owen, uh, I'm not sure if he originated the argument, but certainly he is the most famous uh, proponent of it. Uh, Now, first of all, you know, this gets kind of into theories of the atonement. So, you know, do you adhere to a penal substitutionary model of the atonement and such? And so 
Uh, a lot of Arminians, you know, especially Wesleyans, have adopted, you know, uh, a governmental view of the atonement. And so, you know, thereby they will circumvent the objection that way is that the Calvinist is operating on a faulty understanding of atonement. But uh, I am inclined to think that there are some good reasons to think that at least some version of penal su substitution is the correct view. And so to Owen's objection, I, I would say that I think he's misunderstanding the doctrine of general atonement here. Uh, we would say that Christ died for all in a provisionary sense. So atonement isn't applied to people until the moment of faith. There's, there's that condition there for the application of atonement. And so then the reason that unbelievers are not saved is not because their unbelief hasn't been paid for. That, that was paid for with every other uh, sin on the cross. But the reason... Uh, that, that, that the application of that payment, uh, just as with any other sin, is conditional on faith. So it's not that the payment wasn't made. It's not that the payment's not available. It's that uh, that condition of faith is not being met. And uh, so it's not. So he tries to make the issue about whether or not the sin has been paid for. But no, it's about whether the application of that payment is conditional or unconditional. And the general atonement position has always been that. Um, the atonement is provisionary until the moment of faith. And so that is the explanation for why the unbelievers are not saved. It has nothing to do with whether the unbelief is yeah. saved. Yeah, I, I, yeah I, I, like to, I usually like to give an analogy to help make the, the point even more clear. I say it's like, it's, like, um, it's like if the president of the United States sent a bar of soap to every single individual in the United States – uh, but only only some choose to use it. And so you could say, well, if the president gave everyone soap, why isn't everyone clean? Well, not everyone took a bath. Only some applied it. And so the same way Christ provided his blood to cleanse every sin from every man, but not everyone applies it by faith. It's just like with the soap. Right. But uh, it, another, it, it thing I, another thing I also like to point out is that it, it this is it, – this is kind of like assuming that as soon as Christ died, we were forgiven. But not even the Calvinist believes that. He believes that you know we have to be regenerated first. Like I wasn't saved in 33 A.D. I was saved in 2009. But if Christ, if if his death atoned for my sins right then and there, then I was saved before my grandparents were even born, and that just seems absurd. You were saved before you had committed any sins to be saved from. Yes, I, I agree. It, it's quite um, it's quite absurd to say that people are justified prior to the cross. And yet that seems to follow if you want to deny a provisionary atonement. And Leroy Fourlines really makes this case uh, in his book, Classical Arminianism. He says that the only way to deny a provisionary atonement is to deny justification prior to the cross. Or, or to deny justification by faith. In other words, if you're going to deny that there's no provision, like if you're going to say there's no provisionary aspect to the atonement, then you have to say that everyone who Christ died for was saved, you know, when he died. And that's clearly uh, contradicted by scripture. Ephesians 2, Paul says that, you know, you were born as children of wrath, but it's by grace you've been saved through faith. Yeah, and and even and like I said, even the Calvinists would deny that. I mean, you know, Calvinists would say, "Yeah, I I was uh, I was an atheist, or I was uh, I was a drug addict, but then I got saved on such and such a day when I went to this church and heard some preaching." I mean, they it just you know we 
But but you know you you got Ephesians two is a very good point to bring up as well. And even Paul says that that wasn't the case. You've got biblical t- testimony to the contrary. Yeah, and usually what they'll try to do at that point, like the James White types will do, you know, what they always do is go to, like, some really unclear view of, like, God's relationship to time and timelessness, and somehow that explains how Christ can have really saved you on the cross, and yet you cannot be saved until you believe, and it just it becomes a lot of double talk and weird stuff at that point. But you know, as far as I'm concerned, the New Testament authors don't recognize you were saved at the moment of Christ's death in any sense. Yeah. See, what do you mean, like, a weird view of time? You, talking, you mean, like, like a B-theory of time? The thing, James White is not clear on what his view of time is or of what God's relationship to it is. So, you know, if you want to challenge his interpretations of, like, like so him saying that, like, God decrees, um, you know, uh, for, like, a ch- for child molestation and stuff like that, or, um, you know, he doesn't explain what his view of God's relationship to time is. He's just like, oh, well, this is based on a straw man. If they understood how God relates to time, you know, then that makes sense of all this. But he doesn't explain how. Yeah, I, I would say, and I, I think I would respond to that if he did make it clear, and if he, if he was a B-theorist, Okay, regardless of whether the B-theory of time is even true or not, it's very unlikely that the biblical authors would have known about it. Like, they, weren't, <laughs> like, they weren't reading science fiction novels about time travel back in the first century. So that, would have, that would be anachronistic. That would be, <laughs> that would be anachronistic. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it has something to do with the idea that, uh, of divine timelessness, so God being outside time, which I think is a view of God's relationship to time that both of us reject anyway. I think we both see God as being within time, but uh, most Calvinists uh, would, you know, hold a divine atemporality, so God is not within time, and so, you know, every event is, like, present to him, and I, I guess somehow, somehow by reference to that is how they'll sometimes try to explain that. Okay, so thank thanks for coming on. And uh, do you have what are your what are some of your like video projects that you got prepared on the channel? Oh well, let's Speaking see. Of reason. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. So far, I've hit uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, and uh, I get done a three-part critique of eternal security. I've got one more coming up on that. Then I'm going to do irresistible grace, which kind of what I'm working on uh, in regards to, you know, is faith a gift from God or is it something that we do? I'm going to kind of hit questions like that. Uh, does regeneration precede faith, you know, talk about versus like First John 5, 1 and such. So I'm kind of working a little bit on uh, critiquing irresistible grace. Then I want to make a case for conditional election. So I'll be using kind of these texts like that I've talked about. And uh, after that, I think I want to move into kind of critiquing presuppositionalism. I'm going to move off of theology kind of into into uh back into apologetics, but I want to like build a case for classical apologetics and kind of critique presuppositionalism. Yeah, that's kind of what, that's kind of what I did. I kind of took a break from studying apologetics and I spent, I like to joke that I spent, I had my head stuck in the ancient Near East for uh, like two years because I was just study, very, very heavily studying the primeval history period of Genesis, uh, which resulted in that, uh, very elaborate paper series up on the website shameless plug <laughs> but then i'm like but then i got really i'm like i want to i want to study some philosophy again 
<laughs> you you gotta oscillate, man. You can't. You, otherwise, you get stuck in a rut. You know, you gotta, yeah. you gotta. And it makes you a more well-rounded person. To, you know, know about more than just straight apologetics. Yeah, I was like, I, I yeah, I was, I was getting like, I, I'm tired. I'm tired of all this ancient Near Eastern stuff. Now that I'm done with the paper series, I, I'm going to read. And and you know what I did? I re- I read the second edition of Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview. It took me two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, well done. Uh, yeah, so thank you for coming on to the podcast. Was, oh, thanks for nice, having me, man. Yeah, it was very, very nice to talk about this. And uh, I want to thank all my uh, patrons, uh, Andrew Melnick, Michelle Minton, Christopher Rogers, Nathan Hamilton, Edwin Liu, Jordan Hampton, Austin Long, Kevin Walker, Brandon Whitaker, and David Parrish. And if you'd like to become a supporter of Cerebral Faith, go to patreon.com slash cerebralfaith. So until next time, peace out and keep using the brains that God gave you.